Salty. You've heard the word with regards to food and cooking, but what does salty mean when discussed in a context that has nothing to do with food? What does salty mean in pop culture? If you're not familiar with this term, let me explain it to you because there's a chance that someone has used it to describe you, whether you know it or not. Someone has probably referred to you as being salty, and you probably don't know it. Or maybe you do know it. Either way, it wasn't a compliment when they did it. According to Urban Dictionary, salty, when used as a slang term, can be used to describe someone who is angry, agitated, or upset, as well as someone who is mean, annoying, and repulsive. A more nuanced and specific definition of the word is the act of being upset, angry, or bitter as a result of being made fun of or embarrassed. Also, being salty is characteristic of a person who feels out of place or is feeling attacked. That's salty. That's being salty. And it's not a compliment. There's more to being salty than potato chips. To be salty is to be angry, agitated, upset, bitter, embarrassed. That's salty, and that's the disciples in our passage today. So turn to Mark chapter 9. We're continuing our series, Binge Watching Jesus, as we're making our way through the gospel of Mark. And it should not surprise us at all that the disciples are salty. They are a salty bunch, as we saw in last week's sermon. And today Mark is going to continue showing us just how salty the disciples could be. In fact, one of them, John, will get upset and will be annoyed and will be agitated because some guy who is not in the disciples' clique is having success in ministry and John will get salty about it. So salty that John will ask Jesus if he has permission to shut down this guy's ministry, to shut down his church, if you will. What causes John to be so salty? It's pride. Pride will make you salty. And what we'll see today, and this is kind of the application at the street level, is that pride seduces you away from and suffocates your love for Jesus. That's John in this passage. His heart has been captured by something. His heart has been captured by something, by someone else more than Jesus. And because his heart has been captured by something else, his heart has now been seduced away from love for Jesus and has now suffocated his love for Jesus. That's how pride works in our life. When we are prideful, we've actually been seduced away from loving Jesus and our love for Jesus then begins to be suffocated. Pride will pull you away from Jesus, away from the cross. Pride hinders a quiet, restful heart. Pride stirs it up. Pride will seduce you and suffocate your love for Jesus. Pride will make you angry, agitated, upset, annoyed, bitter, salty. And if you didn't know this, it may come as a surprise to you, but people in ministry, people in the church can be salty too. John is in ministry with Jesus, and he gets salty here. We're a salty bunch. The church is a salty bunch. Pastors can very easily succumb to jealousy and bitterness and competition over the success that we see other pastors and churches have. 
Pastors can get salty when we see other people, how they have been gifted. When we see how other pastors have success and we don't, we can become envious. We can become jealous. And churches can be places full of salty people. But not with the kind of salt that Jesus wants. Jesus will tell us in our passage today that we should be salty, but he's thinking of something altogether different from Urban Dictionary. Look at verse 50 in Mark chapter 9. We'll read it, and then we'll go back to the beginning. But in verse 50, Jesus says this, Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is exactly what the disciples needed to hear because if you recall from last week's sermon in verse 34, they were fighting over which one of them was the greatest. They were being salty. And Jesus will end this Bible study that he's in the middle of here in Mark 9 by telling the disciples that they need to be salty but not in the way that we might think. The church needs to be salty, but we have lost sight of this. Salt has a purpose. It can flavor things. My obsession with biscuits and gravy and hash browns would not be as robust if it were not for salt. Salt flavors and it can preserve things. Salt seasons and salt preserves. But if you have too much salt, it's not a good thing, is it? Too much salt can ruin a good meal. If you have too much salt, it's not edible. It's not nourishing it's not pleasant and just as salt has a purpose so too the people of God have a purpose in this world Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 that we are called to be salt and light but too often the church Christians disciples we have been too salty meaning we have been jerks We haven't flavored this world. We haven't nourished this world that we live in. We haven't been pleasant. We've been all salt and nothing but salt. Too much salt can ruin a good meal. And when the church is salty in this negative way, we can ruin our relationship with the world around us. Too often the church has been full of pride. And we've been like the disciples in our passage today. We've been salty As Robert Capon said, Yes, I know, the church is indeed to be the salt of an otherwise bland earth, but that doesn't mean that the church itself is supposed to be all salt or that it is supposed to turn the world into nothing but salt. Therefore, when it represents itself to the world, it probably should not first of all be seen as salt. That's misleading advertising. You don't put donuts in the window of a shoe store. That only confuses the public about your real business. Likewise, you don't turn the church into a sodality that consists only of bright, white Anglo-Saxons who are happily married, have 1.8 children, and never get drunk. Instead, you just let it be what it in fact already is. A random sampling of the broken, sinful, half-cocked world that God in Christ loves dampened by the waters of baptism, but in no way necessarily turned into perfect peaches by them. As disciples, we want to flavor this world with the good news of Jesus, that he came to live and die for sinners like us. But we're not called to be jerks about it. We need to keep it real about who we are 
Because we know what it is to get real with the real Jesus like we saw last week. And when we keep it real, when we show our true colors and who we really are, which is a random sampling of the broken, sinful, half-cocked world that God in Christ loves, we've been dampened by the waters of baptism, yes, but they have not turned us into perfect peaches, right? As we saw last week, we still have a lot of junk. We still have a lot of sin in our hearts. And this is what the world needs to see. A church that knows how to get real with the real Jesus and a church that is broken and still in desperate need of a Savior. What the world doesn't need to see is a church full of pride. Pride has no place in the kingdom of God. That's what we saw last week with with the disciples and that's what we'll see in our passage today. But keep in mind what we saw last week. This whole section goes together. Don't let those paragraph divisions in your Bible fool you. All of the verses in verses 33 to verses 50 occur at one time in Peter's living room as Jesus gives a Bible lesson on pride. All of those red words of Jesus here belong together. Now, recall what we saw last week. The disciples started arguing about which one of them was the greatest. Jesus said, I'm going to die for you. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be killed at the hands of the religious leaders. And three days later, I'm going to rise again. He shared and spoke the gospel to them. And how did they respond? Immediately, they began talking about which one of them was the greatest. They started talking about who gets the most likes on their Facebook posts. And when Jesus asked them what they were arguing about, remember, they were silent. They kept quiet. They didn't want to get real with Jesus and own up to their selfishness, their saltiness. But Jesus knew what they were arguing about, so he addressed their pride. And Jesus took a small boy and held him in his arms and told them if they wanted to be great, they had to receive a child. Remember, in Jesus' time, children were nothing more than one of life's losers. Jesus is saying that the way of the kingdom is one of loss before victory, one of suffering before glory. Children were losers who were looked down upon in Jesus' day. So to be great, Jesus says, you have to receive and welcome life's losers. You have to welcome them with open arms. To receive a small child means you welcome losers, you welcome the undeserving, the way that God has welcomed us in Christ. So this is what Jesus has been teaching the disciples. He has been addressing their pride, how they were arguing among themselves about who was the greatest, about who had the most followers on Twitter. And Jesus told them that to be great in the kingdom of God, you have to welcome the despised, you have to welcome losers, and you have to serve them. This is the way of the kingdom of God. The last shall be first. And John seems uncomfortable with all of this heart exposure stuff. Jesus has exposed their hearts, and John is uncomfortable with it. John doesn't like Jesus reading his mail, so John doesn't like Jesus uh, calling them out. John doesn't like Jesus calling them salty, so he changes the subject, and he asks Jesus a question. Look at verse 38. And John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward." 
So even after Jesus has just described how he came for losers, how in order to be the greatest in the kingdom, you have to become a loser, the disciples still don't get it. Jesus has just exalted losers over winners. He has just exalted the last and the lost and the least in this world over the movers and shakers in this world. And the disciples still have no clue what Jesus is talking about. Success and greatness runs deep in their blood. It's in their DNA. They want to be somebody. The disciples want to be successful. They want to have their name in lights. They want to be retweeted and liked and have people heart all of their social media posts. And so John, still full of pride and totally, totally oblivious to what Jesus has just said, John wants to know if he has Jesus' permission to shut down this guy's demon exorcism ministry. So some guy was casting out demons and having success And John wants to shut him down. But did you catch John's words in verse 38? John says that this guy was not following us. John didn't say, he's not following you, Jesus, so should we shut him down? No, John actually says, he's not following us. He's not a part of our group, not a part of our denomination. In John's mind, This guy is unqualified to do ministry because he's not in John's clique. He doesn't do ministry the way that John does ministry. Oh, how tempting it is to look down on others who are not like us. How easy it is to inflate ourselves with pride and look down on people and look down on ministries that are not like us. People who are not following us, who don't believe exactly as we believe. That's John here. John is like a bag of potato chips. You know what I'm talking about, right? Bags of potato chips contain about, what, 70% air? That's John here. John is puffed up. John is a bag of potato chips. John is a bag of cheese puffs, puffed up and full of air. He has lost sight of the gospel. And we can do the same thing. How easy it is for Christians to turn into a puffed up bag of cheese puffs. Now, we may not be looking down on others in ministry or jealous of them like John was, but I think we all struggle with pride, if we're honest. See if any of these resonate with you. See if any of these are true of you. See if you can find yourself in this list. Amy Baker says this, Proud people want to do and be better than others. Proud people never want to fail or look bad to others. Proud people worry about what others will think of them. Proud people don't admit where they struggle because they want to look good to others. Proud people judge others who don't live by their standards. Proud people add to God's standards. They set their standards up as better than God. Proud people insist on their own standards. Proud people seek honor for themselves. Proud people think they shouldn't have to fail or struggle with sin for a long time. They think they are different from others. Proud people act as though they are responsible for the things they have instead of acknowledging they are from God. Proud people grumble and complain. Pride finds fault. Proud people love to be first. They are number one. Proud people put a greater dependence on themselves than dependence on God's grace and provision. 
proud people resort to defensiveness, blame shifting, justification, or anger when criticized by another. Proud people invest more resources to establish their own honor than God's honor. Proud people are ungrateful for God's mercies. Proud people have an inability to see their own sin or to recognize the magnitude of it. So if we're honest, we could probably all find ourselves in that list. But remember the context here in Mark chapter 9, and don't let those paragraph divisions trip you up. Jesus is still addressing their pride, how they argued on the road in verse 34 about which one of them is the greatest. The disciples were trusting in their own righteousness, how great they were. The disciples had been arguing about who is the greatest, and so Jesus responds by telling them that the greatest person is the one who serves. But Jesus also wants them to quit worrying over who is on team Jesus and to trust that he will reward every person for the good or evil that they do. Whoever is not against us is for us, Jesus says. Jesus wants them to know that he will deal justly with everything that everybody does for good or for evil. And to prove just how much Jesus hates pride. Get this, to prove just how much he hates pride. Because the disciples haven't seemed to grasp this yet. To prove just how much Jesus hates pride, he will recommend, he will recommend amputation as the alternative. Amputation as the alternative to pride. Look at verse 42. And keep in mind, he's addressing pride here. Jesus says in verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. When Jesus gives a warning about causing someone to sin here, the Greek, the Greek word is the word stumble, to make someone trip up. So Jesus is warning the disciples against causing someone else to trip up or to stumble through life because of their pride. And Jesus says that anyone who causes one of these little ones to stumble or to trip up or to fall, then it would be better if a millstone was tied around his neck and he plop, plop, fizz, fizz, got dropped into the ocean. A millstone was, was a large rock that donkeys would drag over grain in order to grind it out. And, and Jesus says that if you want to be full of pride and look down upon other people and cause someone to stumble, Jesus says it would be better if a large millstone was hung around your neck. If you had a millstone necklace and you were dropped into the sea. That's sobering. God is the God of the millstone. When we injure or abuse or cause others to trip up and stumble, few things disturb Jesus more than causing new or weak or uninformed believers to stumble. 
So Jesus is saying, if you want to persist in pride and look down on others, then Jesus says to you, hey, I have a gift for you. It's a necklace. Jesus knows that what David Pallison said is true. Pride is the beating heart of what it means to be a sinner. And that's all of us. We're all sinners. So pride is, is our beating heart. Jesus knows the destructive power of pride and the mess that it can create in our lives and in our churches and our workplaces, homes, neighborhoods. We tip our hat to the destructive power of sin, but we have no idea the mess and the havoc it can create in our lives. And that's why Jesus warns against pride here. He knows that pride will kill you. And he knows all the ways that unchecked pride will bring mess and wreak havoc in our lives. And so in love, Jesus says to us, kill this stuff. Kill this pride. Jesus knows you can't domesticate pride. You can't take pride home like a hamster from a pet store. You can't domesticate it. It has to be killed, Jesus says. It has to be cut off. Why? Well, the application at the street level is because pride actually seduces you away from Jesus and suffocates your love for Jesus. Pride, fixating on, on things and, and people and, and obsessing over that and how you're better, or you would do it this way or that way, more than Jesus, Jesus says pride will kill you, so it needs to be killed. Remember back in earlier, Mark chapter 9, Jesus had just said, I'm going to go to the cross, I'm going to die, and three days later, rise again. He's sharing the gospel with the disciples, and they immediately start talking about who is the greatest. So their pride has actually seduced them away from Jesus, and it is actually suffocating their love for Jesus. Pride will pull you away from Jesus away from the cross, even if you're prideful about things that Jesus is concerned with. Pride hinders a quiet, restful heart, and it stirs it up. It begins agitating it. Pride will seduce you and, and trick you into thinking that other things are more important than Jesus, that your thoughts and your feelings are more important than the kingdom of God, and it will actually suffocate your love for Jesus. That's why Jesus is saying, through some very bizarre imagery, that you better cut pride out of your life. He says, cut off your hand, cut off your foot, gouge out your eye. He's saying if your hand causes you to stumble because you're trying to grasp power and become a somebody, then Jesus says, cut it off. If your eye causes you to stumble because you pridefully look down on others, Jesus says, cut it out. If your foot causes you to stumble by the way that you live and act, the, the way you walk, if you walk with that prideful swagger, then Jesus says, cut it off. Jesus has one idea for that, that kind of prideful stuff, and it's amputation. Now, keep in mind, Jesus still has this little kid sitting in his lap as he talks about cutting off your hand, gouging out your eye, and chopping off your foot. So he's leading a Bible study in the middle of Peter's living room, holding a little kid and saying, cut off your hand. He's holding a little boy in his arms when he tells them to amputate their limbs. Jesus is getting their attention and saying that if you harm one of these little ones, a, a child, any of God's children, it would be better if a large stone was tied around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. I think Jesus cares about how we treat one another. I think Jesus is serious about how much he hates pride. How much does Jesus hate pride? How much does Jesus hate one-upmanship? 
How much does Jesus hate holier-than-thou stuff? About one large millstone's worth. About one eyeball's worth. Jesus hates pride so much that he suggests you cut your hand off to get rid of it. Now, of course, please hear me out. Jesus isn't telling us to literally cut off our hand, cut off our foot, or gouge out our eyes. Please don't show up here next week with your left hand missing and saying, I just wanted to obey Jesus. Jesus is not telling you to literally cut your hand off, cut your foot off, or gouge out your eye. Because we would all look like zombies if we obeyed him because we're all prideful. Please don't show up here next week missing limbs or eyes. Jesus doesn't want you to literally cut your hand off. When Jesus mentions the hand and the foot and the eye, he's speaking about the ways that we cause other people to stumble through how we perceive others and that prideful swagger that we walk with and the things that we do, namely harming and injuring people with our pride and arrogance. But what keeps people from coming to Jesus? The answer is pride. What confirms a person's ticket to hell? It's pride. It's their refusal to bow their knee to Jesus. Ray Ortland says, Hell is for people who could have enjoyed the love of God, but held back. They, they could have enjoyed the love of God, but they held back. And what holds them back? It's, it's pride. Hell is for people who could have enjoyed the love of God, but their pride held them back. Pride keeps us from experiencing Christ's love, and it ultimately keeps an unbeliever from experiencing Christ's love for all of eternity. Listen, if you're here today and you're, a, you're an unbeliever and you don't believe in all this Jesus talk, kill your pride, repent, change your mind, turn from living for your own kingdom and turn to Jesus. If you don't belong to Jesus today because you're so prideful that you feel you don't need a Savior, then Jesus has these bizarre yet strong words for you. It would be better to cut off your hand and gouge out your eye and cut off your foot than to go to hell, he says. If you're here today and you feel like you're a good person and you don't need Jesus, then Jesus says that it would be better to start hacking off body parts in this life than to go to hell for eternity with all of them intact. And if you are a believer in Jesus and you know you need a Savior, then Jesus is telling you to kill your pride because pride and one-upmanship don't belong in God's family. Pride will suffocate your love for Jesus. And pride will cause disunity in the body of Christ. Look at verse 49. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So what does Jesus mean here when he says that everyone will be salted with fire? The idea is the idea of sacrifice. In Leviticus 2, it says all of the Old Testament sacrifices had to have salt included. So the idea is, is being burned up here, saying everyone's going to be burned up in one way or another. Everyone is going to give an account to God Everyone will be salted with fire. Everyone will stand before God and give account. This is the fire of judgment. Unbelievers will experience this ultimately as judgment in hell for eternity. And believers will experience it in this life through the sanctifying and purifying work of the Holy Spirit. But then in verse 50, Jesus says, Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now what does that mean? What does it mean to have salt in yourselves? Basically, Jesus is saying, 
don't be a jerk. Don't leave a bad taste in people's mouth. Most salt in Jesus' day would usually come from the Dead Sea and it had impurities in it. And if it wasn't properly processed, it would have a bad taste. The salt would taste bad and when you put it on your food, then your food would taste bad. So Jesus is basically saying here, be salty. Don't leave a bad taste in people's mouth. Don't be that guy that irritates everybody and is so full of pride that people can't stand being around him. Don't be that girl that always looks down on others. Have salt in yourselves. Be at peace with one another. Don't leave a bad taste in people's mouth. Don't be that guy. Don't be a jerk. That's what he means. And what does the world need to see today, especially these days with with the church? The world needs to see a church that is at peace with one another. Who aren't fighting about who's the greatest like the disciples. We don't want to be a church here at Grace that is only full of bright, white, Anglo-Saxons who are happily married, have 1.8 children, and never get drunk. We don't want to be a church that's full of prim and proper people who are full of pride like Mrs. Ruby Turpin that we looked at last week in that story from Flannery O'Connor. Instead, we should just let the church be what it in fact already is, a random sampling of the broken, sinful, half-cocked world that God in Christ loves. Dampened by the waters of baptism, but in no way necessarily turned into perfect peaches by them. We don't get into the kingdom by cutting things off or by cutting things out of our lives, as if cutting rated R movies out of our lives will make us right with God. As if that's the standard. What kind of God is pleased and grants eternity and forgiveness of sins to people who simply cut out rated R movies? I'm afraid Jesus is far more holy than that. You can't win over his approval by what you do. You can't win over Jesus' approval by what you don't do. Or by what you cut out of your life. As if cutting sugar out of our diets could make us righteous. Make us right with God. Listen, when I cut sugar out of my life, I get cranky. I'm hard to live with. But so often, we as a church fall easily into this form of self-salvation, these self-salvation projects, as if we could do anything to earn God's favor. We are only made right with God. We can only be made right with God because Jesus was cut off on the cross for us. It's not our cutting off that gets us there no matter how sincere we are. It's the fact that Jesus was cut off for our sin on the cross and because of that that we are granted access to God and permission to be with him in his kingdom forever. And that means that we're not perfect peaches, but we sometimes give the impression to the world that we are, don't we? We give the impression that we have our act together. That's pride. Sometimes we give the impression that we have checked off a list and we've been good enough. But that kind of mentality goes against the brutal crucifixion of God's Son on our behalf. The cross itself points out that it takes more than being good. It takes more than eating vegan. It takes more than giving up sugar. It takes more than not drinking or cussing to be made right with the Holy God. But too often the church gives off the impression that we have it all together and we've got the report card of our good works to prove it. That's pride. And Jesus has a special place for pride at the bottom of the ocean. 
in the pit of hell where worm does not die and the fire is never quenched. Robert Cabin said, And the sad fact is that the church, both now and at far too many times in its history, has found it easier to act as if it were selling the sugar of moral and spiritual achievement rather than the salt of Jesus' passion and death. It will preach salvation for the successfully well-behaved, redemption for the triumphantly correct in doctrine, and pie in the sky for all the winners who think they can walk into the final judgment and flash their passing report cards at Jesus. But every last bit of that is now and ever shall be pure baloney because A, nobody will ever have that kind of sugar to sweeten the last deal with. And B, Jesus is going to present us all to the Father in the power of his resurrection and not at all in the power of our own totally inadequate records, either good or bad. But does the church preach that salty message? Not as I hear it, it doesn't. It preaches the nutra-sweet religion of test passing, which is the only thing the world is ready to buy and which isn't even real sugar, let alone salt. In spite of all our fakery, though, Jesus' program remains firm. He saves losers and only losers. He raises the dead and only the dead. And he rejoices more over the last, the least, and the little than over all the winners in the world. That alone is what this losing race of ours needs to hear, even though it can't stand the thought of it. That alone is the salt that can take our perishing insipidity and give it life and flavor forever. That alone. What the world needs to see today is a church, and I think we do it well here, Grace. We're not perfect. We're not perfect peaches, but the gospel's gotten into our DNA. I think what the world needs to see is a church, see disciples who are real, who get real with the real Jesus and see Christians who are at peace with one another, who love one another. What did Jesus say in John 13? A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What the world needs to see is a church that is at peace with one another, that loves one another. A church who owns up to her own sinfulness. A church that doesn't sugarcoat our sin. A church that repents. A church that repents of our pride. A church that is honest about what is still in our hearts, indwelling sin. A church that admits that it struggles with sin just like the rest of the world. A church that is weak and needy and desperate for a Savior. What it doesn't need is a church that struts like a proud peacock. The world desperately needs to see a church that is honest. Imagine that, an honest church. Imagine that, an honest church. Honest Christians, honest disciples. That should not be shocking. That should be the norm. Pride keeps us from being honest. And pride seduces you away from and suffocates your love for Jesus. Pride will pull you away from Jesus, away from the cross, and cause you to focus on someone or something more than Jesus, like John in this passage. Pride will seduce you and suffocate your love for Jesus. So remember that Jesus was cut off on the cross for you. That's how you cut off and kill pride in your life. You look to the cross. You look to Jesus. You remember that he took the lowest place by going up on a cross for your pride, for your rebellion, and for your sin. 
Pride seduces you away from Jesus and that's why it must be killed. It must be cut off. Because when pride pulls you away from Jesus and you obsess over something else, whatever it is that you're obsessing over, that becomes your functional idol. I've shared this before, but I've found what Steve Brown said to be very helpful as it relates to being the right kind of salty Christians that Jesus wants us to be. He said this, let me ask you something. Do you know a single pagan who stayed away from Christ because a Christian did not act as holy and as sanctified as he or she ought to have acted? I know they will say that we're hypocrites, but usually that is just a smokescreen. The truth is, what repeatedly kills our witness is pretense, not freedom. It would be so refreshing to say to our unbelieving friends, I really mess up sometimes, but let me tell you something really good. God is still quite fond of me. Wouldn't it be great if you belonged to a God like that? If we were that honest, the world would beat a path to our door. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, and maybe you think the church is full of hypocrites, let me tell you, no, it's not full of hypocrites. There's room for more. Want to join us? If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, let me tell you as as the pastor of this church, I really mess up sometimes. But let me tell you something really good. God is still quite fond of me. Wouldn't it be great if you belonged to a God like that? You can belong to him today if you're willing to deal with your pride, if you're willing to bow the knee to the real king, if you're willing to get real with the real Jesus and fess up to your sin and then open the empty hands of faith. Wouldn't it be great if you belonged to a God like that? I think so. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great love for us. We do continually mess up. We do continually sin. And yet, you're still fond of us. And that is the good news of the gospel. That's only because of Jesus. That you have given us his perfect record. His perfect life. And he has exchanged our sin with that and taking our sin to the cross and that's why God you can be so fond of us because in and of ourselves we're not worthy of that it's only because of your son Lord make us a church that's real that gets real with the real Jesus that's honest about our struggles that can tell our friends and neighbors and co-workers that they could belong to a God like you if they'll just give up their pride Help us to be the people of God that you've made us to be for your glory and for the good of our city and world. In Jesus' name.